Want to know more about bonds and bond funds? Sure you do. Stick around and find out here on this, the 16th episode of the Retirement Planning Education Podcast. Welcome to the Retirement Planning Education Podcast, where you can learn all about IRAs and Roth IRAs, employer retirement plans, taxes, Social Security, Medicare, Portfolio Withdrawal Strategies, Annuities, Estate Planning, and much more. And now here's your host, Andy Panko. Bonds. James Bonds. I wish I had some sort of cool spy gimmick thing, like a fancy car or like a a watch that shot something out or whatever. But I don't. So today I'm talking about bonds. Not the James Bond kind, but bonds as in the securities, the investment uh, type. Bonds and bond funds. Consider this episode to be kind of a a primer, sort of like a a mix of a whole bunch of stuff explaining various aspects of bonds and bond funds. There's lots of little rabbit holes we can go down with this one, and and I probably will in future episodes. But for now, this is really just kind of the uh, the intro, if you will, into bonds and bond funds. Uh, Bonds can get a little technical. There's there's definitely much more... um, math and, and, and numbers behind bonds and then stocks uh, in, in many ways. So I did do a video on this in YouTube. Uh, it's pretty long. It has a spreadsheet, some examples, and me actually walking through numbers and things. So that'll be greatly beneficial in helping complement this episode. So check out the link in the show notes to watch that video for more info. Uh, I think you'll find it very valuable. So where do I even start with this? So what are bonds? And, and I mean, typically, you all probably heard of them. I think bonds are, I don't think, but I know bonds are often misunderstood by a lot of folks. Um, even those in the industry, everyone seems to kind of get stocks for the most part. But bonds, unless you've really worked in bonds uh, fairly, you know, uh, fairly deep, deeply, uh, however you say it. Um, even a lot of folks in the industry don't fully understand and appreciate and and know exactly how bonds function and why and, and where they do and don't fit and what all the factors are that kind of influence bonds and bond prices. Um, bonds, even though they're they're less understood, less glamorous in the eyes of many than stocks, they're no less important. Uh, the typical sort of retiree portfolio almost certainly has some portion of it invested in bonds or bond funds, you may not exactly know why. Historically, people think it's to generate income, safe, stable, fairly low risk income. Uh, and that's partially true, which I'll touch on. But there's a little more to it than that, um, as, as you'll, you'll hear my thoughts as we progress through this episode. Um, just some sort of quick musings and uh, opinions as for why bonds aren't nearly as glamorous as stocks. Well, the prices simply can't move around nearly as much as stocks can because bonds, as you'll you'll find out soon, are limited in their life and how much they can pay out. There are mathematically like finite limits on how high and how low a bond price can be. I mean, on the low side, it's zero, obviously. But on the upside, a bond price can never, ever be more than the simple sum of its principal and coupon payments. And you'll understand what that means in a bit. With stocks, stocks can be infinitely high, as we've seen many times over um, over the last decades, last few days, or even longer than that. But you know, stocks can do lots of crazy things. So it's, it makes for a much juicier story, it makes for juicier headlines and sound bites to talk about stocks and uh, you know wild swings in stock prices. Bond prices simply don't do that because they can't. Um, also, stocks trade on exchanges, whereas bonds don't. And uh, stocks don't make for nearly as vivid and lively of a backdrop as the New York Stock Exchange, for example. So financial media outlets like like CNBC 
Um, they can, you know, uh, record live from the floor of a stock exchange and show lots of buzz and people on the floor yelling and flashing hand signals and, you know, this real sort of uh, exciting, glamorous looking thing going on and lots of really big um, flat screens and tickers and stuff. It's like, wow, captivating. You don't have that for bonds. There is no uh, comparable sort of exchange or um, overly dressed up place where where bond markets happen, unfortunately. So there's really not a lot to sort of sensationalize, um, which is one of the big reasons they're not as glamorous. But bonds are a, a larger market. I don't remember the exact statistic. And this is quite old. This was like 10 years ago, I think. But if you add up the value of all stocks in the country or the world, for that matter, it's actually smaller, or was at least, um, than the value of all bonds in the world. Uh, just again, so bonds are no less important than stocks. They're just not nearly as known or glamorized. So what is a bond? Let's get into it. It's an IOU from uh, from a borrower. It's basically a loan. Um, so the way it works, and in simplest sense, I'll give an example. Let's assume um, a, a borrower needs money. They can borrow, let's say, 100 bucks. They'll say, okay, I want to borrow 100 bucks. You give them $100. They agree to pay it back in five years, let's say. In five years, they will give you back that $100. That $100 is called the principal or face value. Along with that $100, you'll get back at the end of the five years, they will also pay you interest, otherwise known as coupon, uh, coupon interest along the way. And typically, interest is paid every six months. Some are a little more, a little less, but let's assume six months. Uh, and let's assume the annual interest rate is 2%. So every six months, they will pay you 1%. So that's 2% per year. So every six months, they'll pay you 1% on that $100 uh, face value of the bond. Again, the face value is $100. So every six months, you're going to get uh, $1 of interest. So every year you're getting $2 of interest, which is 2% of the $100 face value. So along the way, while you own this bond, while you hold this bond, you're getting $1 in interest every six months. And at the end of five years, you're getting the $100 back. And that's it. The bond's over. Its life is done. It doesn't exist anymore. And this is why I said before, um, bond values, that the price of a bond has a mathematical limit on how high it can be. In the case of this bond, you will never, ever be able to get ultimately get more for it then the $100 at the end plus the $1 every six months. So if this bond, let's assume there's only two months left to the life of this bond, uh, all you're going to get is in two months, you'll get $100 plus the $1 of, of, of the last coupon payment. So there's really no way possible that bond can sell for more than $101 at that point. In theory, it can if interest rates are negative. I'll leave that. That's kind of a next level discussion. But um Point is, you're never going to ultimately receive more than $101 from owning this bond. So no one in their right mind would ever pay more than $101 for it. That's why bonds have uh, have a cap, have a limit on how high the prices can be. So th that's a bond in a nutshell. <clears throat> um, uh, in the example I used, it was five years, but bonds can be as short as a few weeks. They could be as long as commonly 30 years or even longer. There are some bonds that are 100-year bonds. There are a rare few that are actually perpetual uh, bonds, you know, they don't have a, a pre-designated end date. They, what's interesting about them, so they are loans. I think you get that right. Uh, the, the borrower borrows money, agrees to pay you interest or coupon along the way, and then at the end of the bond, whether it's one year, five year, ten year, thirty year, whatever, they will pay you back that uh, that principal. Well, uh, it, it's loosely similar to like a mortgage. We're all kind of familiar with what a mortgage is. The difference is th these bonds can be traded amongst buyers and sellers and held as investments, you and I can buy bonds. 
uh, and we can hold them. So even though we're not the ones who have originally lent the money to the borrower, we can still buy that certificate of indebtedness, that IOU from that borrower, such that we buy it from whoever originally gave the money to the borrower. Uh, we now buy that IOU. When the when the bond is up, the borrower pays us back. You know, us the bondholder. So that that's the the basic kind of uh, overview of, of of what a bond is. As I touched on before, bonds don't trade over uh, exchanges like the New York Stock Exchange or the Nasdaq. Bonds trade what's called over the counter. They are directly bought and sold from brokers or middlemen or you know end users or in some cases you can buy like direct from the United States Treasury. You can buy you know Treasury bonds from them, but it's not as uh, I don't want to say it's not an efficient market, but it's not nearly as public. Information isn't nearly as readily available. Like anyone can go on to Yahoo Finance, for example, and get stock quotes, intraday and end of day prices. Y- you can't get that for bonds, or at least not nearly as easily, not nearly as many um, uh, data points out there for, for bond transactions as there are stocks because simply bonds don't trade on exchanges. These are all, in fact, private transactions between buy- buyers and sellers. So you're going to struggle to find data like, like you do for stocks. So who issues bonds? Uh, very commonly, it's 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 governments, national governments, like United States Treasury is, uh, I don't have the statistics on me, it's trillions of dollars of bonds they have, I, I, outstanding at this point, uh, I think. Um, so governments, so like the United States government borrows money by way of bonds. And again, they, they borrow in, in varying terms, anywhere from up to like a, you know, as short as a, a few weeks or a week even, I think. Um, all the way up to 30 years, you can get a U.S. Treasury bond that has a 30-year uh, maturity, you know, 30-year length. And why do they borrow? Well, why does anyone borrow money? They need it for something. In the case of a government, they uh, need it to fund short-term expenses, whether it's, uh, you know, national projects or military spending or uh, salaries or other government initiatives, you know, whatever people need money for, that they, they can borrow by, by way of a bond. So governments are one example, and in the case of the U.S., it's the uh, United States Treasury. That's the actual borrower of money when you own treasury bonds. Corporations can borrow money. Uh, they think, think of any large company you know of. Not every company has has bonds, you know, has public debt outstanding, but a lot of them do, and they borrow it for whatever their reasons are. Maybe they want to expand and, and buy a new company, you know, uh, you know, acquire a company, or they need to build a new building, or buy machinery to uh, increase production or something like that, they can borrow money you know, for that and, and they can do that through a bond. Municipalities, towns, states, local governments can issue bonds um, to, to borrow money for whatever it may be, to build roads or in the case of maybe they're building a stadium or something for a new sports team and they can help fund and finance that stadium by way of uh, borrowing money through, through a bond issuance. So when municipalities issue bonds, they're called muni bonds or municipal bonds. In case you've ever, ever heard the term muni bond before, well, that's what it is. It's simply a, a bond. It's a loan, an IOU uh, from a uh, municipal entity. Now, bonds are kind of trickier than stocks because with stock, there's really just one type or one class of stock. You know, you own a stock, it means you have one voting share generally uh, in the company who issued that stock. And that's kind of it. You know, everyone's got the same sort of share and slice. With bonds, there can be dozens of different individual bonds and different structures all by the same same issuer. So corporations, for example, they can issue bonds that are two-year maturity, five-year, 10-year, 30-year. You know, all these can be outstanding at the same time. They can have different interest rates. They can and will have different interest rates. They can have other different provisions. They can be uh, – some bonds could be secured, like, like the repayment of the bonds can be – 
secured or collateralized by a specific asset or a specific source of revenue from the company the issuer, or they can be what's what's called uh, you know general obligations or general debentures, where the ability to have that bond repaid is just simply based on the ability of the company, the municipality in general, to uh, you know to generate revenue and, and pay. If for whatever reason they can't, and, and they can't pay you in full and on time, either your interest payments or the principal under the bond, well, then that's called a default. Uh, worst case, you, you can potentially walk away, ultimately getting nothing from your bond. You can get stiffed on not only the interest payments, but also the the principal. Now, in reality, chances are they'll get something, some non-zero amount. Now, whether it's 90 cents on the dollar or 80 or 70, it all depends. But uh, it, it'd be rare for you to get truly nothing out of a bond if the issuer defaults. So th- there's uh, credit ratings that are given to bonds. And there's a few different large agencies like Moody's and Standards and Poor, uh, Standard and Poor and Fitch. They're in the business of giving ratings, trying to uh, objectively quantify the riskiness of the borrower. And there's a there's a formally accepted uh, or formally used ratings scale. Uh, if you haven't heard it before, it's going to be a little, little confusing, but basically it ranges from AAA is the highest, then there's AA and single A, and then triple B, double B, single B, triple C, double C, single C, all the way down to D, which stands for default. And the different agencies have slightly different uh, uh, scales. For example, Standard & Poor's uses the AAA, AA, single A, whereas Moody's uses, uh, I forget what it is, uh, AAA, A2, A1, or something like that. Um, functionally the same, but they slightly different labels. So the um, you know there are places out there that do try to quantify the riskiness of the borrower. The the United States Treasury is deemed to be the least risky borrower in the world, uh, and then there's other other borrowers like you know fly by night startup super risky companies that may not be in business in six months. They're going to be at the other end of the, of the uh, credit risk spectrum. They're going to be deemed highly speculative and quite sizable chance that that they may default at some point. Whereas the U.S. Treasury, it's kind of deemed that the default risk is negligible to the point it, it, it's almost uh, zero or you know close to it. All else equal, higher risk, higher reward. So um, the the lower an issuer's credit rating is, you know, the higher its credit risk is the higher the uh, coupon payment is going to have to be. Because if I'm a bond buyer, if I'm investing in these things, and I know all else equal, there's a higher likelihood of me not getting repaid on bond A than there is bond B, I'm definitely going to demand a higher level of interest to hold bond A than bond B. Because if not, if I'm not getting any other upside, why would I possibly take more risk? It would be stupid to do that. So all else equal, the uh, you know the, the worse or, or the, the weaker the credit risk of the issuer the higher the interest, you know, the coupon rate you, you can expect to receive from it. So that's kind of uh, bonds at a super high level. Let's talk about one of the, the main risks to bonds is interest rate risk. I already touched on credit risk. Um, I, I guess I'll finish that off. But, you know, credit risk is basically the, the risk that, you know, bonds are contractual obligations. They're literally contractual obligations. So if going back to the example, I had a $100 five-year, 2% annual interest bond, there is a formal contract. Uh, there's there's a bond agreement that says these are the terms. The issuer agree, contractually agrees to pay you that. So if and when they don't, for whatever reason, they can't just say, oops, sorry, you know, you'll get it when you get it. No, it, it's technically a default. Uh, it, you know, it's a default to the terms of that contract. So uh, credit risk in a bond is the risk that you may not actually get all of your interest and principal 
uh, in full and or on time. And as I mentioned before, that the ways to try to manage or at least um, quantify credit risk is by the, the ratings given by those large agencies. Again, Moody's, S&P, Fitch, and there's different ones uh, around the globe. But in the U.S., it's Moody's and S&P, and, and Fitch, to a lesser extent, are, are really the big ones. So that's credit risk. Uh, the, the other big risk is interest rate risk. Now, this is a tough one to wrap your head around if you're not already at least loosely familiar with bonds and how they work. All else equal, when the market level of interest rates goes up, the price of existing bonds goes down and vice versa. Now, here's why. So let's stick with me in this example. So let's go back to the, the uh, example of I bought a bond today, let's assume, for $100 and it's five years. So in five years, I'll get back $100. And it has a 2% annual interest rate. So every six months, I'm going to get a 1% coupon or a $1 coupon. So $2 per year. Um, so while I hold this bond, I'm going to get $2 per year in coupon. And then at the end of the fifth year, I'm going to get my $100 back. That's under today's interest rates. You know, today's going level of interest rates for five-year bonds is 2%, which is why my bond is paying 2% when this bond was newly issued to me. Uh, okay, I buy this bond. Fast forward a year. What if the current level of interest rates at the time goes up to 3%, right? So the, the, the market is demanding uh, and requiring 3% annual interest to lend money to bond issuers for five years. Well, what's it going to do for my bond? I have a bond where I'm only getting $2 per year. And at the end of the fifth year, I get $100 back when the, the, the current market level of interest rates is now 3% per year. So... No one in the right mind would, would want to buy this five this what's now only four years left to this bond, you know, the bond I had. No one would buy this bond only paying two percent per year. They're not gonna buy it for a hundred dollars because they can get a new bond at the time that's paying three percent per year. So that means the price of my bond, even though I originally paid a hundred dollars for it to get my hundred dollars back in the end of five years, um, now that price is gonna drop. And the reason why it drops is because for someone to step in and buy that bond from me, think about the cash flows they're going to get. The bond's already one year old because I owned it for a year. So they're going to continue to get $2 per year in coupon for the next four years. And at the end of the four years, they'll get their $100 face value back, right? They're, they're not going to pay $100 for it today like I originally paid. Because again, the, the market level of interest rates is now 3%. They can either take $100 and buy my bond and only get 2% interest per year, or they can take $100 and buy a new bond in the market, getting 3% per year. So in order to compensate them for the fact that my bond has lower than market level interest rates now, they're going to offer me something less than $100 to buy it. Let's assume 95. I don't know. So, so now if I were to sell my bond today, even though I paid 100, I'm only going to get $95 from it. And now the person who bought it for 95, they're going to get $2 in coupon per year, which is less than the, the 3% uh, you know, current level of interest rates. But that's okay because they bought it at 95 and are still ultimately going to get the $100 principal value back. They're ultimately going to make $5 in, in capital gain. Bought it for 95, will get 100 uh, when, the, when the bond issuer you know, pays off the bond in four years. And then they'll get their 2%, or, you know, their $2 uh, annual coupons every year. So you add all that together, and the uh, the total return of that bond now is going to equal three percent. Now I, I made the numbers up; I can be a little wrong. You know, maybe ninety five isn't the current price, but but the point is 
there's math, there's financial formulas that figure out, okay, uh, I have this old bond that was purchased when the market level of interest was 2%. Now it's 3%. How much less should I be paying for this bond such that the gain I'm going to get from where I buy it versus where I get paid off at maturity, plus the, plus the, uh, you know, the coupons I get along the way, that that all collectively equals 3% per year. That's the math behind bonds. And, and that's why, in a nutshell, when interest rates go up, existing bond prices go down and then vice versa. I won't, I won't belabor the point, but going back to the same example, I bought a bond for $100 that'll pay me $100 back in five years, and I'll get $2 in coupons along the way. Fast forward, it's now one year in. What if the market level of interest drops to, to 1% only? So I got, a, I got something great, right? I got a bond paying 2% when people in the market now can only buy something paying 1%. So what's going to happen to the price of my bond? It's going to go up. People are going to pay a premium to get 2% per year coupon when they can only get 1% elsewhere, which means they're going to pay more than $100 now to buy my bond that I paid $100 for. So I'll, I'll pause there. That um, The video I did, that, that the link is in the show notes, ha- explains this in, in much better uh, format than I can do you know, verbally. It has a spreadsheet and you can sort of see this all, this bond math come to life. But just you know, trust me when I say, all else equal as interest rates go up, bond prices go down, and vice versa. And the other thing to know here is the longer the maturity, the remaining maturity of the bond, the more its price will be impacted by changes in interest rates. So a 30-year to maturity bond, its price is going to move much more for a given change in interest rates than a one-year to maturity bond. Um, again, there, there's, there's math reasons to that and the video will help make sense of that, but just, just know that for now as well. You know, the, the longer the maturity of the bond, the more sensitive it's change in price is to, uh, a uh, given change in interest rates. Now here's where thing, things get tricky in case you didn't already think this was tricky. Um, I don't want if you buy and hold an individual bond until it's maturity, the change in price really doesn't matter. Uh, you're ultimately, you will get your $100 at the end. The, the, the price can and will go up and go down along the way, but ultimately the price is going to have to converge on the ultimate principal value, the principal repayment of that bond. Um, it's a little thick, but, but, but think about it this way. Again, you have a five-year bond. Uh, it's one year old at this point, so there's four years left, and there's a 2% annual coupon, and you'll get $100 back at the end of four years. Go back to my examples I gave before. If the market level interest rates goes up to 3%, the, the current price of my bond has to drop, meaning if someone were to buy it, they're going to demand to pay less than $100 for it to, uh, so they can ultimately get 100 back, and that's how they'll get compensated for getting below market interest by only getting 2% on that bond. And vice versa, if rates were to uh, were, were to go down, but along the way, as we get closer and closer to that terminal maturity of the bond, in you know, in four years, in this case, you know with certainty what the cash flow is going to be. Extreme example: there's one day left until maturity. What's the remaining cash flows? You know, what's what's the remaining economics of this bond? Well, whoever owns this bond tomorrow, we know what they're going to get. They're going to get one hundred dollars in principal repayment. And they're going to get $1 from that last semi-annual coupon payment. So all said and done, we know with near 100% certainty, unless the bond issuer were to default in the next 24 hours, but let's assume that won't happen. Uh, we know with certainty that in 24 hours, whoever, whoever holds this bond is going to get $101 
no more, no less, and that's it. The bond is then over. So as we get closer and closer to maturity, when the final remaining cash flow is $101, the price of that bond has to converge to, uh, it has to get increasingly close to $101 such that up until, you know, it's finally maturity day, no one would ever pay more or less than $101 because that's all they're going to get from owning this bond is $101. Make sense? Hopefully. Uh, Again, this is really, this is, podcast isn't the best format to be going through something sort of technical and numeric like bond math, but hopefully this at least, um, I don't know, it gives a, a basic framework for start, uh, you know, for, for thinking about how, how and why bond prices do what they do. Um, so anyway, p- point is, if you buy and hold the bond to maturity, you will ultimately realize its principal value uh, getting paid to you and the coupons along the way, barring a default. Again, if the issuer defaults, you, you may end up getting something less than the contractually promised coupons and principal, but outside of default, you will get back the uh, principal amount and, and all the coupons along the way. So that's bonds, individual bonds. How about bond funds? Fairly straightforward. Um, just like you know, you all know what a, a stock is. You can buy shares of Apple or Google or Amazon or whatever. That that's you owning an individual company. You can buy things like mutual funds or exchange traded funds, which are basically just you own a slice of a pool, and that pool owns lots of different. Uh, individual stocks. Could be dozens, could be hundreds, could be thousands. Bond funds work the same way. You can buy a mutual fund or an exchange-traded fund. That's really nothing more than you owning a pro-rated slice of a, of a big fat pool where that pool owns hundreds or thousands of bonds. There are, for example, um, mutual funds and ETFs that seek to track a broad total bond index where you'll that one mutual fund holding will own literally 10,000 plus individual bonds underneath it. So bond funds are a great way to cheaply and easily get a bunch of diversity uh, in your holdings. You know, it's not feasible for you to go out and buy a hundred different individual bonds and manage them because you're going to have maturities. You got to pay attention to maturities and even buying them is going to be more difficult. Like I said, bonds don't trade on an exchange. You have to buy each one individually through a broker. There's going to be a transaction cost. Maybe it's 20 bucks. Maybe maybe it's 50 bucks. I don't know. Um, But bonds aren't nearly as easy to buy. You know, individual bonds aren't nearly as easy to buy and sell as as, as stocks are. So bond funds can make a lot of sense in that that way. You know, it's super easy to buy a bond fund. It's no different than buying a stock mutual fund or a stock ETF. And with it, you get the underlying diversity of thousands of individual bonds. And there's lots of options. If you want a total bond market fund that there's, there's, you, you know, you can get it cheaply and easily. If you want just a municipal bond fund, you can get it. If you want just a municipal bond fund for just a certain state, like just California, just New York, whatever, you can get it. If you want just a corporate bond fund, you can get it. Uh, if you want a bond fund that focuses on longer maturity bonds, you can get it. Whether it's longer maturity treasury bonds, or longer maturity corporate bonds, within that, you can get longer maturity uh, high high investment grade corporate bonds or you know low kind of junkish credit quality uh, corporate bonds. So much easier to trade and get exposure that way. Um, the downside is, like I said, with individual bonds, if you hold them until maturity, you know the economics you're going to get. You don't have to worry about the sort of unrealized price changes in the bond along the way because your price of that bond will converge on the terminal value, you know, the, the maturity value of that bond. With bond funds, not quite the same. Um, a bond fund is, is really this continuously evolving pool of bonds coming and going. You don't control when you buy and sell each bond within the fund. You only control when you buy and sell the fund. The fund's price 
will move around as the market level of interest rates moves around and even as the uh, market's appetite, depending on what kind of fund you own, if, if you want to fund that invest in lots of like risky corporate borrowers, um, separate from just interest rate movements, the bonds bond funds price will be influenced by the gen- the market's general level of uh, demand of, of rather risky bonds and you know risky uh, credit issuers. It can go up or go down simply if, if people... Uh, get more concerned about those borrowers, you know, that can make the price of the bond fund drop. So there's a little more to it. Um, bond funds aren't, uh, they don't give you as much control of of the price and price moves as, as owning individual bonds do. But again, it's it's not functionally that feasible for, for most people to have a single or even a collection of individual bonds. Uh, it, it, it could be fairly difficult to manage. Um, and bond funds could all, on the upside, they can help uh, mitigate or better manage credit risk. And if you're buying individual bonds, let's say you own, you know, three bonds, one from the treasury, one from, I don't know, uh, General Electric and one from IBM. Well, if IBM or General Electric default, well, then, you know, there, there goes a decent chunk of your bond holdings. When you buy a, a bond fund, like I said, you can own thousands of indiv- individual bonds uh, within that fund. So if one, two, even five of the issuers of the bonds in that pool default, you know, so what? You're going to be okay. There's still hundreds or thousands of other issuers that uh, that won't default. Um, just to wrap up, what's what's the the purpose of bonds in a, in a retirement portfolio? Uh, well, people think it's income. Historically, they thought it was when 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 interest rates on bonds were mid to high single digits or even double digits, you know, decades ago. Then it looked like yeah, bond bonds were there to throw off a lot of guaranteed income. That's only sort of true. Even though decades ago, interest rates were were that much higher and income was higher, tax rates were much higher. Inflation was much higher. So like the net purchasing power, net of taxes, net of inflation, even when, uh, you know, 10-year treasury bonds were were paying 15-something percent, give or take, the the net take-home was substantially smaller. It wasn't actually 15. Taxes were higher. Inflation was double digits. So maybe you got a couple percent uh, of, you know, of net actual usable uh, income out of it. So so yes, while on the surface, income was higher from bonds historically than it is today. For example, 10-year treasury bond is currently yielding, you know, its interest rates two-ish percent, depending what day you're hearing this. Um, and it was, you know, below 1% at the sort of bottom of the pandemic a, a year or two ago. Um, so yeah, interest was higher in absolute terms decades ago than it is today. But like the, the net usability of it after tax, taxes are lower now than they were decades ago. Inflation's lower. Well, currently it's it's spiking, but inflation's been quite tame for the last couple decades. Um, you know, the the income aspect of bonds isn't really dramatically different th- than it was decades ago when you factor in inflation and taxes. So anyway, point is, um, don't think of bonds more so to throw off a lot of income because they won't. You know, now one and a half, two percent interest maybe on bonds is what you can reasonably expect for something that's not super long maturity or super short maturity. Think of bonds more as a ballast of relative stability against stocks. You know, stocks in your are in your portfolio for long term growth. But stocks can and will do crazy things along the way. Look at uh, the 30% drop in the S&P 500 during the, uh, you know, the early stages of the pandemic. Look at the 60% drop in the S&P 500 peak to trough during the, um, the financial crisis of 08-09. Look at the tech bubble busting the first few years of the 2000s. You know, stocks can drop dozens of percent. Um, bonds typically won't, again, unless you're investing in the real bottom of the barrel credit stuff and super long maturities. Bonds and bond funds aren't dropping 20, 30%. Um, 
again, there's there's some exceptions, but generally speaking, well diversified, kind of intermediate or short term bonds and bond funds, you're not losing 20, 30% on them. Uh, so, so bonds are really kind of there for, like I said, ballast of stability. As stocks are doing crazy wild things, your bonds should be relatively tame. Now, bonds and bond funds aren't riskless. Like I said, bond funds can go down in price, and they have. One of the most widely used bond funds, the uh, total bond market index that a few different mutual fund providers and, and stuff have, have funds on, is actually down like like 5% uh, year to date so far as of when I'm recording this. So not riskless, but to help offset that, they're throwing off about 2% per year interest currently. Anyway, po- point is they're there to not be so crazy in their price moves. Yes, they should hopefully throw off a few percent interest um, on average going forward, but there will be years where they're down. There'll be years where they're up a little more than that. The hope is really just some relative stability. You're not going to make a lot. You're not going to lose a lot. With that said, you may be asking, well, why not invest in something else? Well, uh, I'll save that for next week when, when I'll discuss some possible alternatives to bonds in your portfolio. Now, there's really no great or foolproof alternative. That There's different things that have different pros and cons, which I'll touch on next week. But um, that there's really not a rock-solid alternate solution for bonds. But... I'll, I'll let that be a teaser. I'll get into that more next week. Uh, we'll stop it here for night for t- today. Otherwise, I can kind of keep going about bonds for hours. I used to teach analysis of fixed income at the um, graduate school of Rutgers, Rutgers School of Business for for a couple semesters. So I really enjoy this stuff, but it can be quite hairy and quite technical. So anyway, I'll, I'll leave it there for tonight. Hope you found this a good primer, a good intro into bonds and bond funds. Uh, if you like this, you, you like the stuff you hear here, definitely check out my Facebook group, Taxes and Retirement, YouTube channel, Retirement Planning Demystified, and my newsletter, Retirement Planning Insights. You can find links to all three in the show notes. And if you do like this episode or any of these episodes, please definitely uh, give a little like, a little thumbs up on whatever podcast platform you're uh, using to, to access this podcast. And if that platform allows leaving reviews, please leave a, a healthy, juicy fantabulous review of uh of this show would be greatly appreciated all right that's a wrap thank you all i will see you next week the information discussed in this podcast is only general explanations and education it is not specific tax legal or investment advice before considering acting on anything you heard here first consult with your tax legal or investment advisor thank you thank you